Okay, this morning we'll read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time where we can gather together. We do pray very specifically now for this moment as we open your holy and inspired word and we ask you to speak to us. Father, I pray that in asking that you would get all distractions out of the way, not least of which the preacher Father, I pray that your word would have its way with us and that we would grow to love you more today and seek to live our lives to make much of Jesus. We ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen. I trust I'm not the only one who has a hard time tuning in to the news anymore. Honestly, it's, it's just heartbreaking, right? It seems like every time you turn on the TV or log into whatever place you go to get your news, there's yet another tragic event to hear about, to read about. We obviously had multiples this week. Sometimes these are followed by riots in the street. I guess those are supposed to accomplish something. And then we see yet another round of calls for peace with differing ideas of how we should get to that peace, all of which seem to only further divide and fracture rather than bringing any level of true peace. I mean, with all the talk about reconciliation today, I trust we recognize that the dividing lines are growing only deeper. And I would propose to us, as we sit here in a church, to consider the fact that at least one of the reasons this is true is because most of the methods and means of reconciliation proposed in our world today are remarkably misguided from a biblical standpoint. And more to the point, as as a Christian, I am increasingly burdened 
that the church, specifically the Western church, over the last hundred years or so, much to our own chagrin, has taken up a follower's mentality all too often, following along the very means that culture says are best in order to address culture. I mean, all you got to do is go back to liberal theology of the late 1800s, early 1900s, with the whole social gospel movement that flowed out of that as a, as a test case right? Look at that to see the dangers of following culture to tell the church how to reach culture. See, now we've got a lot of years in between that, and so now you can drive through the streets of New England, for example, where my family lived for over 10 years, and you can see church building after church building that are no longer housing churches, but are things like historic societies and condos and one, even a gas station that I drove past. And that's a painful reminder of the folly of following culture's solutions to make an impact of the world around us. See, as Christians, we should not, indeed cannot, look to culture to give us the lenses with which to look through to try to understand and make an impact on the brokenness that is around us. On the contrary, We say we believe Scripture is our ultimate authority. We need to live like that, right? We we need to believe that Scripture speaks to these things and let Scripture be our guide. And when it comes to the idea of peace and reconciliation, Scripture's not silent. In fact, in the providence of God for us this week, the passage that is queued up for us as we've just been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, the passage we have the privilege to cover has much to teach us on this topic and how we must pursue peace. And what I want to say just right here at the top is that real peace, true and lasting peace, is impossible. It is impossible without Christ. More to the point, the amazing peace held out for us in our text that we're covering this morning is nothing short of cross-centered peace. So let me invite you to turn with me, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be digging deeply into verses 13 through 18. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 13 into the first part of verse 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Our whole passage that we're covering today is all about cross-centered peace. As we work through this text, you're going to see that Paul uses this word peace multiple times, four to be exact. And, and not only does he just use this one word for peace to get at the idea, but he uses related ideas such as reconciliation or making two into one or creating one new humanity, gaining access to the Father in one spirit. In fact, he even uses antonyms of peace to drive this home even further, speaking of Jesus removing enmity and hostility that stood in the way of peace. Here we're kind of using verse 13 as a bit of a bridge 
You may recall in our last sermon, we, we ended right here, and, and I'm doing this because verses 11 through 22, our, our Scripture reading this morning, is one very tight unit. And, and as I've said before in this series, sometimes we break these units apart, but try to hold them together in the, in the preaching here, and that's what we're trying to do. So in our last sermon, we worked through verses 11 through 13, where Paul exhorted us to remember, right? Remember that before Christ, we were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. Before Christ, we were separated from the Jewish Messiah. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to these covenants that hold great promise. We had no hope, precisely because we were without God in the world. But now, two beautiful words, but now, in Christ, we've been brought near. Jesus went to the cross, right? We just celebrated Easter. Jesus goes to the cross. The veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing new access to God. And now, all who are in Christ, even those who were once way far off, are brought near by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has reconciled us to God on the cross. Jesus removes this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands for judgment. He, he canceled that, paying for it in full, as He took our punishment upon Himself. And I just want to say right here at the top of this sermon, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, this reconciliation with God, this, this peace with God is here for you. But you must humble yourself. You must repent, believe in Christ, and follow Him. And I would just encourage you, I would plead with you, as you sit here thinking about the rest of this sermon, thinking about the peace that Christ provides for His people, as, as, as God perhaps tugs on your heart, I would plead with you to cry out to Jesus today to save you. As Paul proceeds on into verses 14 through 18, we learn more about this peace that Jesus has procured for His people. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. He says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I should point out that when we talk of peace, more often than not, we, we, we speak of peace in psychological terms, right? We're having a really tough week in the office, and, and when we say, I just, I just need to find some peace, Right? A, a stay-at-home mom in, in the midst of you know, kids running around and craziness and all of that, sometimes she'll tell her husband, I just need some peace. Uh, even at times, people that are, are wrestling with some of, their, some of their past, right? And they're, they're, they're trying to make peace with some of that. There's just this psychological aspect of, I just want to find a way in my own head for things to be okay. I mean, isn't that a big part of vacation so often, 
I need to get away from the hustle and bustle, from the stress, from all of that, whether it's sitting out on a beach with, with nothing but, you know, sun to shine down on you and, and hear the crash of the waves to, to get away from the stress and have a little peace. Well, the peace spoken of in the New Testament is different than that. It's not less than that. Because the peace that we're going to talk about certainly has a wonderful result of quote-unquote psychological peace, but it's far more than that. In the New Testament, this word peace can refer to this, this peace, this relational peace at the horizontal level. Peace that we are to have in the church right here in what Paul refers to as the new humanity, peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. And and you see this as you move on through Ephesians. So you're going to come to chapter 4, and Paul is going to say that we must work as a church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Other times, though, as we just talked about, the New Testament speaks of peace at the vertical level. this This is peace with God. This gets at the reality that as sinners, we have offended God, and we are actually under His wrath, and through, and only through, Christ's death on the cross, He provides for us peace with God. And in this particular text, both of these two are at play. In fact, we see that for Christians, these two realms of peace, horizontal and the vertical, are inextricably tied together. And interestingly, we we often think of peace as something that Christ provides for us, as we just talked about, or or sometimes even what Christ proclaims to us, as we'll see at the end of our text. But here, notice that he's put forth as the very locus of peace. He is the, the place of peace. Or maybe I can say it like this, he's the embodiment of peace. Remember, in the Old Testament, one of the titles for the coming Messiah. He would be the Prince of Peace. Well, that's where Paul begins here. He says, He Himself is our peace. And this, this is really the, the organizing rubric of, of the whole passage that we're looking at this morning, as he's going to show us that Christ is the place where horizontal peace is found, and this horizontal peace is inextricably tied to vertical peace. So start with the horizontal. Paul says that Jesus is our peace, as Jesus is the one who takes two and makes them into one. And this is getting at Christ's creation of a new humanity. Some of you were here when we started this series, and and in our very first series, kind of our overview sermon, I said that the theme of this entire book is God's new creation in Christ. Or or put a little bit differently, you could say this book is all about God's cosmic reconciliation of the whole world, the world that went wrong at the fall, but's being redeemed through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and will ultimately and finally be brought to completion when we get to the new heaven and new earth. Now, when you think about it like that, there's an already but not yet aspect to this, right? But in this case, I want you to notice that Paul is leaning in on the already. Already, through Jesus' work on the cross, he has made two into one. 
Now, we must understand what he's talking about in the original context. While we can and should and will draw some implications for the world around us as we study a text like this, we must first and foremost understand that this text is speaking about this huge distinction between Jews and Gentiles or between Jews and everyone else in the world. Here Paul says that God through Christ has brought these two people together. Now, by that, Paul's not espousing some form of universalism where all of a sudden everybody's in. No, his point is that through Jesus, God has taken some Jews and some Gentiles, and by nature of their God-given faith in Christ, he's brought them together. He's created this new humanity, a, a third way, if you will. Now, of course, there's still Jews who reject Christ, but keep their Jewishness. And, and there's, there's still Gentiles, though now with these categories, that would be all those who are not Jews, who are also rejecting Christ. And then there's the church, the third way. And it's very instructive that when we read Paul, it's clear that he does not see himself as a Christian Jew. He's not a Messianic Jew who has to accommodate himself to Gentiles. That's not how he presents himself. He sees himself as a Christian, a member of a new humanity, a new creation, who now, now that he's in Christ, he has to flex to win the Jews, and he has to flex to win the Gentiles. So 1 Corinthians 9. Now, going back to something I said a minute ago, the reason I say that we can draw implications regarding the world around us is because according to the Bible, this is the greatest divide you could possibly have in humanity. I mean, this is huge. Let's be clear. If Christ can somehow bridge this gap, there is no gap that he cannot bridge. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And we're all related, right? Lots of talk today about race wars but you'll sometimes hear theologians say that according to the Bible, there's only one race, the human race, and I think that's right. We can all, every single one of us, doesn't matter what your skin tone is, every single one of us can trace our lineage back to one mom and dad. And then taking our cues from the Bible, after the fall, you got this tower that goes up in Genesis, right? It's called the Tower of Babel, and bad stuff starts happening. All of a sudden, you have the creation of languages, don't you? And, and all of a sudden, the separation of peoples. And as you read on in Genesis, you've got this table of nations. And so now, you start to have these different ethno-linguistic groups. Well, that's a lot different than the way we think about divisions of people today, merely dealing with skin tone. What's more, there's this huge, monumental divide. And it's a God-created divide, as it is one step in the path of God's plan of redemption. So, so it's a divide tied to covenant. Specifically, at first, God's covenant with Abraham, where God was calling out a people for himself, a people through whom his Messiah would come, the Savior, the Redeemer would come. And this covenant brought with it an external barrier marker, that of circumcision, whereby God is marking out his people. 
As God's plan of redemption continues to unfold and God miraculously swoops in and rescues his people out of their slavery in Egypt, he gives them what we would call the Mosaic Covenant or the Law Covenant, right? He says, in effect, I've just rescued you out of slavery. This now is how you live as my covenant people. And with that, there's even more barrier markers. God's people would not only have the physical barrier marker of circumcision, now there's this new holiness code, right? And God's people would eat differently. No no lobster and bacon for the people of God. It would have been tough. They, they, they would have dressed differently. They would have purified their homes differently, and so on and so forth. So, so this divide was huge. This would be like two people standing on opposite sides of the Grand Canyon with a great wall where the Colorado River runs. And here Paul says, Jesus came and tore down that wall through his flesh. That is, through his finished work on the cross, Jesus has torn down this wall of hostility, as Paul calls it. He did this, Paul says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. Now, what in the world does that mean? And as you might imagine, lots of ink has been spilt here, for we know Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to just say, it was a mistake, you know, we don't need that. No, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. And so maybe we need to start with this question. What does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which, by the way, when you see the law and the prophets, or sometimes the law of the prophets and the Psalms, that's biblical parlance for the entire Old Testament, okay? Came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. And he, and he says similar things throughout his entire earthly ministry. In John 5, he's having this argument with the Jews, and they're like, well, we have Moses. And he's like, no, no, no. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. That's Jesus. He understood. It was all pointing to him. On the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ, we're told he begins with Moses and all the prophets and shows how the entire Old Testament pointed to him. See, this is all going back to something I said earlier. The Abrahamic covenant followed by the Mosaic covenant were steps along the way in God's plan of redemption. And thus, when the long-promised seed of the woman comes along, the long-promised Redeemer, the one who would overturn the curse, when He comes on the scene and He lives a perfect life, though tested in every single way, just like all of us, never fails at one point, and then He goes to the cross as both high priest and sacrifice, He fulfills all of what was pointing to Him. And listen, By necessity, when certain things are fulfilled, they are no longer in service. I mean, think about it. Say, for example, a rich man promised a homeless man a new house, and he wants to make it real official, right? He writes up a contract. There's this contract of promise on this new house, and you can bet your bottom dollar that this homeless man would hold fast to this promise, right? He's got this promissory note, and he's got it in his pocket, and you're going to have to kill him to get rid of that promise. And once the house is given to him, 
And now that paperwork is executed so that the homeless man is no longer homeless, but now he's a homeowner. The promissory note's no longer in service, right? It's been fulfilled. The man's no longer homeless. He's a homeowner. He no longer lives in light of a promissory note. He now enjoys his new home. And this is analogous to what Jesus accomplished for us. Here Paul says, Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, which is talking about the Mosaic law or the law covenant. And see, as the law covenant was one step in the process of God's plan of redemption, now that that step has been fulfilled in Christ, it's no longer in service. We are no longer under the law covenant anymore. See Paul's argument in Galatians 3. In in, in Jeremiah 31, we have this glorious promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like, don't miss language of discontinuity in the new covenant, not like the covenant I made with the fathers on the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. The old covenant you could break, the new covenant you can't. But they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. That's different. You've got this interiority in the new covenant. I'll put my law within them, and I'm going to write it on their very hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one teach his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I mean, that is a glorious promise. That's a promissory note that you would want to hold on to, right? And then Jesus comes along. And in the upper room, the night in which he was betrayed, he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, in and through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled all that was promised in Jeremiah 31. He instituted the new covenant, making the old covenant, the law covenant, obsolete. He abolished it. He tore down that wall of separation that stood for years between Jews and Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no connections between the law covenant and the new covenant. I mean, just study the Bible and you see that there's all sorts of continuity and discontinuity. But the fact is, we Christians don't live under the law covenant anymore. We're under the law of Christ. And see, it was the law covenant that was that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. I already said, it created all sorts of barriers. It was the law covenant that told the Jews that they were the chosen people of God and and to be separated from everybody else, they must wear certain things, eat certain things, don't mix certain products together. And it was full of barrier markers that marked out the people of God from everybody else. It separated the Jews from the Gentiles so that neither of them, neither group, saw the other as somebody that they could associate with. But Christ comes on the scene and he fulfills all of it In fact, he fulfilled the Davidic covenant, didn't he? He's now the long-awaited eternal Davidic son, Davidic king. He fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, right, whereby he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. See, the time of redemptive history for separation of Jews and Gentiles had come to an end because Jesus 
the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, had come and accomplished every single thing it pointed to, making a way for horizontal peace through his work on the cross. Paul's not done because, as we've already said, the horizontal peace described here is inextricably tied to vertical peace. We see in verse 16 that through Jesus' work on the cross, Jesus provides vertical peace, which is the very foundation for horizontal peace. The ground of being reconciled to one another is first being reconciled to God. Go back to what we said earlier. All too often when we think of peace, we just talk about psychological peace, or sometimes, actually a lot in our culture, we now talk about sort of a horizontal peace. But the most important peace any human being could ever have is vertical. It's peace with God. And that is because at the fall, and in and through the results of the fall, not only did human beings find enmity with other human beings, but most importantly, we found that we were at enmity with our maker. Because of the fall, every single one of us were born in sin, and we've all chosen sin, and as a result of our sin, we're at enmity with God. God created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, and we said, no, thank you. I'm going to glorify myself and enjoy all of my idols forever. And in so doing, we committed high treason against God. And the result is that we all deserve God's wrath. I mean, just look back at verse 3 of the same chapter. We were all by nature children of wrath. But in and through Jesus' death on the cross, Colossians 2 tells us, Colossians is like a sister uh, text to Ephesians. Colossians 2 tells us that that record of debt that stood against us was indeed hostile to us but it was nailed to the cross with Jesus, whereby he bore that punishment in full and killed that hostility. And look at the language Paul uses here in Ephesians. Think about this. Christ was slain in order to slay the hostility that stood between us and God. And then and only then, he slayed the hostility that was there between us horizontally. And see, now we're starting to lay hold of what he said back in verse 14, that Christ is our peace. He's the very locus of true peace, as he not only provided vertical and horizontal peace for us, but he's also preached it to us, as we see in verses 17 through 18. Look back at the text. He came and preached peace. To you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, the question here is obviously when. When did Jesus preach peace to both those who were far off and those who were near? Or said differently, when did he preach peace to both Jews and Gentiles? Now, some argue that this happened during his earthly ministry. I mean, after all, in places like John 14, Jesus told the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That's pretty awesome, right? But others say, no, that was just Jews that would have heard that. This is, this is referring to the cross because his work on the cross is where pre peace is preached to all who would believe. 
Others say, no, this is talking about his post-resurrection appearances. I mean, in John 20, he appears to his disciples, and the first thing that we see him say is, peace be with you. Others still say, no, 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 no. This is referring to the proclamation of the gospel through the apostles, whereby most who come to believe would, would, would hear the gospel through them, right? Because their words were once for all delivered to the saints. And connected to that, yet another line of thought is, yes, that's all true, but he's still preaching peace today as his church fulfills his final mandate, which is to take the gospel of peace to all the nations. And I honestly think we're probably trying to slice the pie a little too finely in distinguishing between these, though I do think the emphasis of this text is on the latter two, Christ preaching through the apostles and on through his church. And I think we get there by recognizing what Paul's doing in the text. See, in verse 17, he's bringing two texts from Isaiah together. In Isaiah 57, 18 through 19, we read, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to those far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Or again, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Time precludes digging into each one of these texts to to try to show what, what Paul's doing here, but I think it's instructive that in a very similar context in Romans 10, Paul again picks up on this Isaiah 52 passage saying, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. See, the gospel of peace did indeed go through all the nations in the first instance through the apostles. I mean, just think about the organizing rubric of the entire book of Acts. Acts 1.8 is the outline for all of Acts where he says, you will be my witnesses. This is the outline the book follows. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, bump out Arung, Samaria, bump out even further to the ends of the earth. And as we Christians now engage in the spiritual battle of going and fulfilling the Great Commission, we have, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, fit our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace as we carry on this work of Christ preaching through us. We take up the mantle that Paul left to us as ambassadors for Christ, where God is actually making his very appeal through us for people to be reconciled to God. So 2 Corinthians 5. And it is this preaching of peace that provides access to God. Don't miss the Trinitarian note that he ends on. Because of the preaching of Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access to God the Father in one spirit. Christ is preached, access to God the Father in one spirit. Through the preaching of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit, all who believe can now enjoy both vertical and horizontal peace, life-changing, amazing, glorious peace that starts now and is the gift that keeps on giving 
as it will one day be completely fulfilled when Jesus comes again and we dwell with him in the new heaven and new earth. And I want to end with two important applications that I think flow from this passage. And the implications from these two are far wider than anything I could cover this morning, but I pray that they'll lead to some good biblical conversations amongst us going forward. The two applications I want us to consider are how should we think about and work toward peace both inside and outside the church. Start with inside. Simply put, we must work for peace within the church. And as we're called to gather in local churches, it all starts right here. See, biblically speaking, we should not be surprised in a lack of peace out there. Okay? Biblically speaking, we should not be surprised with a lack of peace in the world that is under the influence of the devil. I didn't make that up, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 that we covered earlier. The devil is the father of lies, and he delights in unrest and chaos. So, from an expectations management standpoint, you should not be surprised when there's no peace out there. I know in all the beauty pageants they say, I'm all about world peace, but it ain't coming. It ain't, not until Jesus comes again, okay? That being said, for the Christian, while we're not surprised with the lack of peace out there, a lack of peace in here should be immensely troubling. Houston, we have a problem, a five-alarm fire, for Jesus himself is our peace. He went to the cross to make peace for us with God and with one another, He tore down the great divide between Jew and Gentile, and there's no divide greater, not ethnicity, not socioeconomic, not education, nothing. And think about it. If Jesus went to such great lengths to bring about such peace, then this is something that we must take seriously and work hard to maintain. I mean, think about this. On his way to the cross... Literally hours before the most excruciating death imaginable, Jesus stops and he prays. And midway through that high priestly prayer, as we call it in John 17, he turns and he prays for those who would come to believe through the apostles' preaching. That's us. He prays for us and he prays for unity. One prayer request, that's it. You think this is important to our Lord? Absolutely. And it should be to us as well. If you have a prayer list for the church, and I I hope you do, this should be at the top. This is something that we work toward. This is something that we're not okay with when it's not happening. If you're at loggerheads with a brother or sister, you don't rest. Work through that. If you see that you've got two brothers and sisters that are against each other, they're struggling with each other, ask God to be his means of perhaps stepping in and and being useful there because this is important. In fact, in fact, Jesus tells us that it's this unity, this love that we have for the brethren, this peace in the church that actually makes us a compelling community. That's what Jesus teaches us. Read John 13, 15, and 17. 
He says that it's our love for one another that causes unbelievers to stand up and say, whoa, something's different there. That's different and wonderful, compelling. So that's inside the church. That's vital. That's something that we all must care about, that we all must work toward, that we don't rest when it's not there. But what about outside the church? What's our role there? And here I want to say that we should, indeed we must, work for peace, but in the ways taught us by Scripture. I said earlier that the ways of the world have not and will never solve the lack of peace in the world. To be more blunt, I continue to be amazed when Christians imbibe certain methods of the world that are actually antithetical to Scripture in hopes that they might use said methods to create some positive impact for the kingdom. And here I'm thinking of things like promoting LGBTQ plus sensitivity training or, or thinking that critical race theory or intersectionality or Black Lives Matter is actually helpful in the racism discussion. And you could go on and on with these worldly systems. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am in no way at all saying it's okay for Christians to be anti-gay. You know, we're against gay people. No. Or unsympathetic to those struggling with, with gender issues. Or God forbid, a bunch of racists. That's crazy. There's nothing Christ-like in any of that. We, as Christians, love and hold out the gospel to everyone. The issue here is, why would a Christian think that a recent and worldly worldview, that when you study it, it is actually antithetical to the gospel, why would we think that would be useful in accomplishing kingdom goals? See, for believers, we must think deeply on Scripture. For we do believe Scripture sufficient, at least we say that. Now, in saying Scripture sufficient, that doesn't mean that we run around giving people simplistic answers. Oh, read these three verses and you're all set. No. We, we engage deeply in the Word. We, we, we grow in having a biblical worldview. And then we recognize, as we've seen this morning, that Scripture does indeed speak to things like this. I mean, our text this morning has so much to teach us about peace and reconciliation. And one thing that is patently clear here is that the Bible teaches us that peace with one another has its beginning, middle, and end with peace with God. That's why in our last sermon, when we covered verses 11 through 13, we, we, we said that this is so important that we remember, right? Remember. That was the whole point of the last sermon. We daily remember that we were all once dead spiritually, every single one of us. We were slaves to the world, the devil, and the flesh, right? We were all as far off as you could possibly be, and God through Christ in His grace has brought us near, and that church should shape our hearts for those who are still in slavery, the very slavery we once lived in. And see, then, and only then, we're ready to engage. And we saw this morning that Christ has and is preaching peace. 
He did it during his life, through his death, through the apostles, and now his church. And the question for us is, are we? Are you? And God's providential plan of redemption at this point, at this precise point in salvation history, the proclamation of peace goes out through us. It goes out through the church. And so again, the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I preaching peace to a fractured and shattered world? Am I regularly holding out the offer of glorious peace that I've come to enjoy because somebody held it out to me? Or am I keeping that to myself? Or perhaps worse yet, am I honestly engaging more in the world's preaching of division? Now, does that mean that we only preach the gospel? All we can talk about is evangelistic endeavors? but say nothing of the methods of the world that are antithetical to Christ and the gospel of peace? Must we stay mute on things that are opposed to the gospel? Absolutely not. Paul, super helpful, flip a few pages back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't have time to elaborate on this, but it's good to set our eyes on and maybe muse on throughout the week. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. Talk about spiritual warfare. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. And we take every thought captive. We often think of that as you know, it's just, you know, I'm struggling with sin, take that thought captive. That's not the point of this passage. This passage is talking much broader. It's talking spiritual warfare. We take every thought, every idea that's out there captive and make it obey Christ. So absolutely, there's a place for saying, that's not right. You see that all over the Bible. That's not right. And here's why. This is what the, this is what the Bible says. But can I be honest? Sometimes I'm sad to say that I think we're more like the men that you see in Athens in Acts 17 who sit around pontificating on worldviews, complaining about the world around us, than we are like Paul who was always all about preaching the gospel of peace. Oh, you know, you got an idol to the unknown God? Let me tell you about that unknown God. And then finding great comfort, great satisfaction in saving some, saving some, right? We're not always promised just this mass influx, but great satisfaction in saving some. My point is we're not going to make much of an impact if we're simply a bunch of negative Nellies or grumpy evangelicals just always fussing about the world around us. I mean, church, we have so much to offer We're not the only ones struggling when we look at the world around us. And we want to be bold in sharing the life-giving hope of true peace, peace with God, that holds out real hope for peace with one another. And I truly believe the greatest impact we can make in the world around us, the only one that's eternal, is by proclaiming the peace of Christ. And as God wills, some 
come to believe. And those some join with us, and so there's now more people preaching Christ. And some more come to believe, and they become a part of us. And so even more people are preaching Christ. Right? When you want to talk about making an impact on culture, we need to see more Christians. And in order to do that, we need to be holding out the gospel of peace. And so, church, may we pray. May we work to that end. May we be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for this gospel of peace. Let's pray. Father, you have appointed us to be here at this precise moment in history. Every time in history has had its own challenges, we certainly see and feel, perceive the ones that we have. And we know that at this point in salvation history, the gospel of peace goes out through your people, goes out through us. Father, we ask, we pray that you would help us to arise, help us to be faithful to the task, help us to tell people, come see the cross where love and mercy meet. Oh, Father, we ask for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.